Hi, welcome to the Seattle Mama Doc Podcast. I'm Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson. We all work so hard to perfect how we pull off parenthood, and often we may not feel good enough. I'm here to help you face these challenges head on. I'm here with Dr. Julie Brown. Hi, Julie. Hi, nice. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, it's my pleasure. Dr. Julie Brown is an emergency medicine physician at Seattle Children's, and she studies risks for kids who put things in their mouths that cause them harm. That includes swallowing batteries, swallowing magnets, and kids who get exposed to foods or, or toxins in their environment, ultimately, and how to help. And we're here to talk quickly about what she's really learned as a community member, as a pediatric emergency room doc, and a scientist on the culture, really, of cultivating a culture of compassion for families who have food allergy or families who have children at risk for anaphylaxis. So first off, tell us what you've learned and where you've learned it. Well, my journey into food allergies actually started a couple of years ago when I joined a food allergy group, a very large food allergy group on Facebook called No Nuts Moms. Um, And I joined because I was um, investigating auto-injector injuries, actually. But um, I got excellent information about that, and, and these allergy moms were so incredibly helpful, but they also asked me, why anaphylaxis care across the country was in such disarray and why they were so challenged um, with dealing with health care providers. And it seemed like they knew more than the health care providers did. Um, and I have to say, initially, I, re- I took that with a little uh, bit of skepticism. But then I really started listening. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I had to um, pick up my jaw off the floor with some of the stories that I've heard about um, pre-hospital and hospital care, where we were really not following um, anaphylaxis guidelines, and um, we as medical providers. Um, And from there, I just um, became very committed to these families and trying to help make things better um, in terms of what is happening medically. Um, But I also learned how challenging it is to manage food allergies um, and how... um, often the community is not really supporting these children and adults with allergies. And so I've become um, a passionate advocate for these families and um, particularly the children who really struggle to not only deal with their allergies, but to deal with how they are treated by um, others in the community. Mm-hmm. Well, I kind of like, I can stand up on a, a box and applaud in that you kind of speak the language for me of how social media can teach physicians how to be better advocates, right? And actually better doctors in the end, um, that I didn't learn a lot about food allergies. I mean, you were one of my teachers in residency. And yet when I was with you in the ED, if we didn't see a kid, you know, with anaphylaxis, we probably weren't talking about it overnight, right? And so um, we learn a little, of course, we learn the bread and butter, but I have learned, there's no question that I have learned so much both in caring for patients in my in the clinical environment and for me even in, in the national media or local media, whatever it is, from food allergy families and from social media of how to the point that these moms and dads who take care of kids and kids themselves with food allergies teach us about experiences, how to manage it, um, triggers, and the culture. So I, I just nod and nod and nod. I'm so thankful that these groups exist, both for food allergy families, but also for we in the medical community that we can so become more expert at supporting families. So, yay. It's been quite an experience. I think I've learned, I feel like I've learned more over the last couple of years than I had in most of my um, post-medical school training. Um, 
I've learned from such incredibly smart and well-informed allergy moms, and I'm just very eager to share. Yeah, thank you. No, and I, that is such a testament, too, that the dissemination and the kind of aggregation of intelligence from a social media community, right, that you can get a whole hundreds or thousands of families' experiences in one place. And, you know, people can kind of nod or like or bump stuff up, right, so that people start understanding these themes, to, to, to your and I point. And, I, you know, I had a friend who wrote a blog called Four Hours on a School Bus um, who's a food allergy mom and a, um, a, kind of, in, a, in some ways an evangelist of using social tools and using each other. And, and that was my foray. I mean, it was really basically her testament that her son's entire life, like she went on every field trip. She never felt it was safe for him to go without her because mm-hmm. of the exposures that would occur, because of his multiple food allergies and the risks that and his experiences with anaphylaxis in the past. So just the incredible um, um, uh, amount, the change of parenting that goes on to create and continue protections for children this way. Exactly. So so let's talk, let's talk about what doctors and healthcare providers can do to kind of, I think, contribute to cultivating a compassionate culture around food allergies? And then can you talk about what you've learned that parents are doing for each other as well? I think for doctors and healthcare providers, it's really about being well-informed. This isn't, as you said, part of our classic medical education. So uh, learning more about food labeling and how problematic it is in the United States. Um, can you explain what is problematic about it? Well, the um, uh, food or industries that that manufacture food, um, most of them are controlled by the FDA, but not all. Uh, those that are follow under their prescribed rules, which are that you have to label for those top eight allergens, peanuts, tree nuts, eggs, milk, wheat, soy, fin fish, and shellfish. But you don't have to in individually label for other allergens. So if your child is allergic to sesame, for example, which is a really rising allergen, it may be um, labeled in the ingredients as spices. And it may not be called out individually. Mm-hmm. So that's obviously very challenging for the, the child with sesame allergy to make sure that the things they buy are safe. Um, in addition, may contain labeling in the United States is voluntary. So um, if a product is, doesn't intentionally contain peanuts, for example, but it is run on the same lines as other products that contain peanuts, then it has a pretty high probability of having some small amount of peanut protein in it. And um, a very small amount of peanut protein can result in a life-threatening reaction for a child who's allergic to peanuts. So um, some companies are better than others, and um, some choose not to label using may contain or other similar labels at all. So you can't just rely on what's on the package to necessarily know that that product is 100% safe. Okay. So f- food labeling is one thing, medical providers. What else? I interrupted you, so i got to get you back. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I think understanding um, what it takes for food allergy families to stay safe. I think people in the community and even sometimes medical providers feel like food allergy parents are helicopter parents, that they're hovering over their child, mm-hmm. that they're um, unnecessarily cautious um, in many environments, in school and sports and eating out. And in general, um, the steps the food allergy parent is taking are necessary steps. Mm-hmm. None of them chose to <laughs> live this life and be a food allergy parent, um, but it really does take a, a certain amount of helicoptering, if you're going to call yep. it that, to keep a food allergy to child safe. 
Well, just to interject again, I, I think that's in part because we are so critical of different parenting styles at baseline. Then when a family has to change the environment and the rigor around what a child is exposed to in their life, they can get easily miscategorized there, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like those mommy wars exist all over the place. And in this regard, these families, these are life and death situations for some children, <laughs> Earnestly, and it's the food allergy families that have really helped me change. I think I, I think I think ten years ago I would have been scared to say that that this is a life or death thing. It is, in the case of anaphylaxis, if not cared for or intervened on immediately. So, I appreciate the suffering that comes from kind of being labeled something, right, yeah. and being kind of too um, over the top about. And it's and yet we should embrace the families work, of course, and, and how much they're doing and ask and learn from families. Because all families have great tricks and tips to share with each other, too, that they share with me and then I share with other families, too. So. And one of the hard things about um, allergies is that environmental allergies, like, you know, you have a pollen allergy and it gives you a runny nose and sneezing and coughing and maybe a bit of wheezing, is uses the same term, allergy, as a huh. life-threatening, you know, anaphylaxis-inducing yeah. allergy. Yeah. So it, so um, that results in the community sometimes not understanding the severity of this problem for children who have these life-threatening allergies. It needs a different name. It's interesting. It, it, That's, I've, never, I've never heard that, and I, I'm sure I, I, it's such a – it's so interesting that we said this child has um, food-provoked anaphylaxis as opposed to this kid has a food allergy. Like how different that that potentially over time could help – a community accepted as a as a real medical condition. Yeah. yeah. I think the other thing that's challenging is that um, I think in general we are very compassionate uh, for children in particular who are having medical problems. You know, I can't imagine anybody who wouldn't be willing to accommodate a child with cancer who needed something special in the classroom like hand washing to make sure they didn't get exposed to infections or a child in a wheelchair who needed a, a wheelchair ramp so that they could get to the lunchroom. But um, I think there is a tendency in our culture to um, maybe not extend that same level of compassion when it requires that we be inconvenienced. Yeah. And unfortunately, one of the challenges for food allergy families is that they have to depend on the actions and behaviors of others to keep mm -hmm. their child safe. Mm -hmm. But really, it does take a village to keep a food allergic child safe. And all of us have a part that we can play in doing that. You know, when you're told that you can't take um, peanut butter into your classroom or that your classroom has a child with multiple allergies and you are not going to have food in the, the classroom, which means you can't have your cupcake party, um, be understanding and accepting of that. And there are many ways to celebrate and enjoy food uh, or uh, classroom events without using food. Um, all of us can um, spend a few hours on an airplane without needing to have peanuts. You know, I've, I've made the change myself to... Um, even the food that I bring on a plane, even though you know that may it may not be required that I n I not bring snacks that have nuts, it's extremely easy to find non-nut containing. It's, weird. it's even weird. Why did why did nuts become the thing on airplanes anyway? And it's remarkable to me how kind of bullied I think people are when they try to get rid of it. You know, I mean, to to that point. I mean, yeah. I, and I think 
unfortunately, sometimes when this is not on someone's radar, that 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 experience of it being an inconvenience becomes so dominant. But if if we you know it's like if we could grab anybody by the shoulders, and they were willing to listen, I don't think it'd be hard at all to get rid right. of it in the industry. And does, the, the food yeah. allergy moms just say, you know, I wish you could I wish you could have seen my child when yeah. they were turning blue in front of me, yeah. and maybe you would be a little more likely to keep your peanuts in your pocket for a yeah. few hours until you're finished with the, yeah. the plane ride. You know, it's it, it doesn't take much to um, offer a lot of um, support and um, make food allergy families um, make their job a little easier. So let me transition then a bit. We were talking specifically really about healthcare providers or healthcare advocates in some ways. Let's let's go from and I know you're not a food allergy mom yourself, but what have you learned in the communities that you've been a part of and in the work of understanding how to do a you know, you have you have done a huge chart review, it sounds like a literature review, to create anaphylaxis guidelines for Seattle children's. Mm-hmm. And in that literature review and in all this community environment that you've learned what have families taught? What if specific food allergy, what can they do? I mean, what is it that food allergy families have taught you that families can do? Food allergy families or non-food allergy families. I mean, is there anything else? Um, well, I guess kind of building on what we've been talking about, about a third of food allergy, uh, food allergic children are bullied. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think non-food allergic families can be aware of how they role model, what they talk about at home, mm-hmm. you know, how they express um, what it takes to provide the, the food that their school allows, um, because what they say influences how their children behave and how their children view a food allergic child. Um, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's helpful, too. Like, I sometimes think about when I'm th- when my kids were young throwing birthday parties. I think I used to think of, like, okay, if there's a food allergy kid coming, I can serve, you know, I can serve 12 of them this, and the food allergy kid, I can serve them this. A better solution, right? I mean, I know this is so so ridiculously obvious, but I don't think I have always done it well, which is instead of thinking about the food allergy child as an outlier, just recreate what you serve right. <laughs> to everyone, right? Like, that's the way to create a compassionate environment. And to tell that parent, hey, do you want to check what I've made or what I've gotten? I've tried to do this well because I'll probably miss the mark sometime too, right? I've decided to choose um, this restaurant, et cetera. They serve this and this. We've made sure we did this recently for a food, you know, we have a, a couple of food allergy um, children who tend to hang out with my, my kids for their birthday parties and things. And we chose a restaurant and they, um, you know, they had pizzas without dairy. So we were able to do that. And then they had sorbet and we were going to do sorbet. But they, you know, one family had talked to me, oh, they went there one time and they don't really think they clean the scoops well enough and they had had a cross reaction. So they're like, no, no, we'll just skip on that. And, and but like learning that ahead of time, right? So I could create a different than, you know, gummy candy dessert for everybody. It's such a better solution than isolating a child to have Absolutely. something different. So, but, yeah. but, uh, but as you pointed out, um, it may be that if you have the pizza that doesn't have milk in it, that helps keep that milk allergic child safe. But the, but the parent may still opt to bring their own yeah, food for that child. Yeah, yeah. And so it's really helpful to engage the parent and ask them, what's the best way to include yeah. your child? And just you know, have the, the goal of in, in excluding the food and not the child. Yeah. Do you think um, I've asked this before? Maybe this is a little provocative. Uh, we can edit it out if we don't like it. But the, um, do you, do you think I I always I've have the, I have this feeling now where I know schools have Epi, and you know we on our block we're the you know in the coordination for emergency events we're kind of the first aid center. So I have epinephrine in our home. Do you think it will become that way? Like the epinephrine's everywhere. I mean I, I think critics in some ways as epinephrine 
you know, gets more kind of posted in community sites, like how AEDs, right, how we've gotten AEDs all over. It, will it be that we'll have epinephrine so widespread? Should physicians always have an EpiPen in, in their home or an, an you know, auto injector of some kind in their home? Or um, should families? I mean, it's just kind of an, I don't know, maybe it's too provocative. I, I just. I, I, I um. You know, I don't have any food allergies in my home, and I carry an auto-injector yeah. when I travel because yeah. I think I may be the doctor on a plane who yeah. needs to help a family. And most plants, just so you guys know, do have epinephrine. I have experienced that as a physician on a plane, but um, but, yeah. but still. Yeah, you may <laughs> yeah, be you in a restaurant. Own, yeah. You may be somewhere yeah, where you're right. asked to help. And so um, right. I just do make it a habit. I have one in my home, and I have one when I'm traveling. And I know a number of providers who've chosen to do that. I, I, I think it would be... Um, an incredible thing if they were more universally available. One of the challenges, though, is that they're very expensive. Yeah. Um, even if your insurance company is paying them a, the bulk of that cost, which um, is um, happening a little bit better this year than it was last year. So people are having, in general, um, smaller co-pays and better uh, options for getting some one of the three available the coupons, auto injectors. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are easily universally available. Yeah, and, and that's a problem, clearly. Uh, and, and I think the other, you know, obvious here, and I think the reason I almost said, do you think, I think every physician should have one, is that not everybody can get an epi auto-injector prescription, right? Yeah. So if, if, you know, if every family all of a sudden raises their hands and goes into their primary care pediatrician and says, I want to have one in my house, the pediatrician probably, just to be clear, is probably going to say, no, you don't need one. So I think that's why the question might be too provoking. But I, but I think, I think we're just learning how to get more comfortable of having epinephrine auto-injectors around, learning more to have school teachers, school nurses, coaches, family members, and kids themselves. You know, kids self-carry typically, do you think, around 11 or 12 and where they really learn how to use an auto-injector themselves? Well, there are two levels. There, um, Kids may carry younger than that, but not be intending to self-administer. So lots of food allergy families like to start to get their child comfortable carrying as early as possible so that it's a habit. Um, And I think most allergy families have a really good idea when their child can carry it safely and not be messing with the device inappropriately. And I defer to them. If they think their child's ready to carry, I think they should self-carry. Unfortunately, some of them um, meet challenges with schools sometimes who won't allow them to self-carry and say it should be in the nurse's office and it may be in a locked cabinet and the nurse may only be there a few days a week and how does that make that available for the child when they need it? So I'm a big believer in um, allowing families or allowing children to self-carry as soon as the parent feels that they're ready. Um, But but they may not be ready to self-administer until they're, say, 11 or 12 or older and they may not be capable of self-administering depending on the nature of their reaction. So it's important that people in their environment are also um, trained and capable of using it. And that means not only the main ner- the main teacher in the classroom, but the substitute teacher yeah. who comes in the classroom. And um, maybe the administrators in the office and, and the bus driver all need to be comfortable administering the, the de- child's device. Yeah, I, I think that it can, I think, right when we get to there, where we say bus drivers, teachers, coaches, administrators, I, I nod my head because of what I've learned through being a pediatrician now for 11 years in practice. And I think it's, again, a, 
embracing and listening to experts like you and expert moms and dads who know this too who are saying the same thing and changing our culture to be more open to actualizing that everybody's going to have to take a responsibility. And ongoing work will work on prevention of these of food allergies so that hopefully a decade or two from now we will not have the numbers we had because of the last decade where we had that big spike. Um, but I think this is just the beginning. J- Julie, tell me, um, you as a kind of curious investigator and a researcher and a pediatric emergency room doc, where would you tell and kind of point people to go online? I'll put this on seattlemomandoc.com as well. But what resources do you think can be really useful to families? Uh, Well, the Food Allergy Research and Education Organization has an incredible website with lots of different information geared to providers and new um, allergy families and experienced allergy families has tells you about the different research that's going on. So that's really an, a fantastic place to start. So and that's just that's fair again. So that's www.fare.org. And then each of the auto injectors um, have information on their websites that include often videos um, and um, good visual instructions of how to use their devices. And so you can go there and learn how to administer one of these devices. Yeah, so you can just Google or go into search and just search, you know, AviQ or search EpiPen. And you can go and find – you watch a little YouTube on these things too. I think yes. that makes – I think even just doing that takes away that – unfamiliarity, right? It just You become a little bit more, um, sim, you know, it just becomes a little bit more recognizable, so it doesn't seem so intimidating, I think. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Brown. Thank you for having me. The reality is parenting is a high-stakes job, but the good news is you've got this. Thanks for listening. The Seattle Mama Doc podcast episodes air every single week. I'm always interested in hearing what you have to say, what was helpful, and what you want to learn more about. Reach out to me on Twitter at Seattle Mama Doc, on my Facebook, Seattle Mama Doc, or at SeattleMamaDoc.com. Tell me what you want to learn. Tell me if you want to join me and point me to experts you'd love to learn more from. 